The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five. Upping the ante, strong words from Fed Chair Jay Powell over runaway inflation. That is boosting the odds of an even bigger rate hike. In China, Boeing and the FAA hoping to figure out what caused that deadly 737 crash in China. Well, the plane lost 25,000 feet of altitude in just over a minute. In Ukraine, President Volodymyr Zelensky with a new olive branch for Moscow in the hopes of ending Putin's war. A live report ahead. A planned walkout at Disney today by some employees over Florida's controversial Don't Say Gay Education Bill. And your stock of the morning, Nike, overcoming clogs, supply chains, and inflation worries, and surging in the pre-market. Investors hoping others can... Be like Mike. It is Tuesday, March 22nd, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome, as always, from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thank you very much for joining us. Let us jump off right here on your Tuesday morning with your markets, and they are mildly higher across the board. Stock futures are up for the three major indexes. Not a whole lot. We are seeing 148 on the Dow, NASDAQ, and the S&P higher as well. The Dow snapping a five-session win streak on Monday. Investors thrown really to the sidelines, kind of trying to figure out what the Federal Reserve is going to do. You got comments every day from either Jay Powell or another Fed official on how aggressive they might be around inflation. A lot of people have questions, so some may be just deciding to sit the whole thing out. Well, as we watch the Fed, we're also watching, of course, the bond market. Yields of the 2, 5, and 10-year all at their highest level since May of 2019 this morning and take a look at the two-year, 10-year yield because that is getting close to being the same, if not inverting. Why do we care about that? Well, inverted yield curves for two and tens generally considered a fairly good predictor of an oncoming recession, maybe not tomorrow, but at some point in the future. So again, there was a nearly 1% spread between the yield on the two and the 10. That has come way down it's now just about 20 basis points, maybe one-fifth of 1%. So keep an eye on the two-year and the 10-year spread. You're going to hear a lot of people in this network talking about that in the days and weeks ahead. Well, crude oil may be the more important thing for the stock market than the Fed because it seems like every day if oil goes up, stocks go down. If oil goes down, stocks go up. And kind of look at it today. We're seeing the price of oil, at least on paper, down a little bit. Remember, this is the expiration uh, of one month here. This is the April contract now. Um, we're seeing the move down in oil and stock futures up. Although when I say down in oil, we are still above $110 per barrel. So we're down from the close, but we are still higher than we were a couple of days ago, which I'm sorry to say means that gasoline prices, which actually fell a bit nationally in the last couple of days, could begin to tick up again. And your stock of the morning that has got to be Nike. Shares are higher. Their results topping estimates thanks to strong North American sales. Although there are uncertainties over, you guessed it, 
inflation and supply chain. Nike says it is holding off on giving a full year outlook because of those concerns. Nike shares up today, although down from their high of a couple of months ago. Still, they are on the rise uh, by about 6%. All right, let's see what's happening in the European markets. Get some of their top stories as well. For that, we'll go to Rosanna Lockwood in our London newsroom. Rosanna. Yeah, good morning, Brian. And let's actually start on the other side of the world in Asia because we've got this united theme of energy and financials taking us around the world. This is what we inherited in Europe this morning. The Nikkei 225, which is heavily oil and energy exposed, that closed 1.5% higher. The Hang Seng, though, that's the one we want to point out to you, closed up 3.15% higher. Now, Alibaba has a lot to do with this, but before we flick to tech, just look quickly at the ASX 200, up 8 tenths of a percent, very commodities exposed there in Australia. But let's see what happened in Hong Kong overnight because we had the tech index closing just quite a bit higher, up just under 5.5%. Now, Alibaba raising its share buyback scheme to $25 billion, the largest repurchase plan ever. And that did raise Alibaba up above 11% in Hong Kong trade. It's doing well, U.S. pre-trade as well. Let's give you a look at Europe markets, though. That's the thing that I promised you because energy and financials, that's what's raised here as well. FTSE 100, again, heavily energy exporter exposed, up just over half a percent here in London so far this morning. Meantime, the DAX doing a bit better after a week session yesterday. It's now about a percent higher in the CAC, about three quarters in France as well, Brian. All right, Rosanna Lockwood in London. A lot of green on the screen. Thank you very much. All right, now to that tragic and developing story around the crash of the Boeing 737-800 jetliner in China. Rescuers combing through the wreckage of that China Eastern Airlines flight carrying 132 souls. Reports say drones and a manual search are being used to try to find the black box that is essential to investigators. A nearly seven-year-old jet crashed near the city of Wuzhou in the Guangxi region that ignited a fire big enough to be seen on NASA's satellite. China Eastern Flight 5735 was flying at 29,000 feet when it entered a steep, fast dive. That, according to data from FlightRadar24.com, the plane then plunged to 7,400 feet before briefly regaining some altitude before diving again. The plane stopped transmitting data 96 seconds after beginning to dive. Boeing shares ended the day down about 3.5%. Shares uh, right now not really on the move as investigators trying to figure out exactly what occurred there in that tragedy. All right. Now to the fighting in Ukraine. Now in its 27th day, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says he is prepared to discuss a commitment that Ukraine will not seek NATO membership. That in exchange for a Russia ceasefire, total withdrawal of Russian troops, and a guarantee for Moscow and Ukraine's security. In a speech late yesterday, Zelensky also repeated his call for direct talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin, adding that he is ready to discuss the status of Crimea and the eastern Donbass region, which is being held by Russia-backed separatists. We will have a live report from the region coming up in about 30 minutes right here on Worldwide Exchange. All right, meantime, let's get some of this morning's top corporate stories. Silvana Hanau is here with those. Good morning, Silvana. Good morning, Brian. We'll start with Tesla because it will hand over the keys to its first Model Y crossovers built at its brand new $5.5 billion German Gigafactory to clients today. The ceremony marks the official opening of Tesla's first European production hub, and the biggest investment in the German car industry in recent history. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz will be in attendance at today's ceremony, along with CEO Elon Musk. 
cybersecurity firm Okta is investigating reports of a digital breach after hackers posted images of what appeared to be that of Okta's internal systems on messaging app Telegram. Okta, which has more than 15,000 customers, including companies, universities and government agencies, says it will provide updates on the investigation as soon as they become available. The discovery of the possible hack comes just hours after the Biden administration warned Russia is exploring options for cyber attacks on U.S. companies. And Disney is preparing for a planned employee walkout today over the company's handling of recent LGBTQ plus issues, including its stance on Florida's don't say gay legislation. Ahead of today's protest, CEO Bob Chapek, in a meeting with staff yesterday, announced he is forming a task force focused on engaging with LGBTQ plus creators and that Disney recently signed the human rights campaign opposing a Texas policy that criminalizes parents providing gender affirming care for transgender minors. Brian. All right. Savannah Hanal, thank you very you much. Got it. All right. Let's get back now to the markets and apparently a more aggressive Fed when it comes to interest rate hikes. Chairman Jay Powell now saying the central bank is prepared to raise rates by one half percent, better known as 50 basis points, to help combat inflation less than a week after announcing the end of the Fed's easy money policy. And in a new report, Goldman Sachs saying it expects the Fed to make that move at both its May and June meetings. In other words, raising by potentially one percent in two meetings. For more, let's bring in Phil Palumbo, founder, CEO and CIO of Palumbo Wealth Management. Uh, Phil, good to have you on. Um, I have no idea how the economy is going to turn out. I usually have some kind of thought, some prediction, some quip. I have no clue how the American economy is going to look in nine months, given inflation, the Fed rates and its balance sheet. Do you? Investors have to embrace for a recession at the end of 22 and 23. When you put it all together, Brian, in terms of connecting the dots, the Fed has been way behind the curve. So in 2021, he was talking about inflation being transitory to in December, changing his tone, becoming more hawkish to yesterday saying now he's going to hike rates 50 basis points if he needs to, maybe more than once in 2022. So a complete turnaround. He knows he's behind the curve. So now he's got to push to really get inflation under control. Before the war, we had an oil problem. We had an inflation problem. We had a supply problem. Post or during this war, all of that's been exacerbated. And now you have lockdowns going on in China, which means supply chains are still going to be an yep. issue. When you put that all together, I can't imagine any other scenario but a recession. Well, that, that's that's kind of how I describe it, too. The inflation, I know politicians want voters to you know, blame Putin. And Putin is certainly the fire on it. But inflation was smoldering before that as well. This is now a conflagration. But I guess here's the bizarre vortex of Fed thinking, Phil. And help me out here. It's early in the morning which is if you think and others think that we're going to potentially go into a recession at the end of next year or early 2023, whenever it is, wouldn't that mean that at some point then the Fed has to either stop raising or stop easing, which then could provide that fuel to a new stock market rally? Do you see where I'm going in this endless loop of Fed Absolutely. The Fed put's going to be the Fed saying, I'm not going to raise interest rates anymore. The whole dot plot of seven times rate, raising rates six times in 2022, and then what they predicted in 23, they're barely going to get to four um, just because of the volatility that's going to come as a result of, of the stock market. 
I think liquidity is going to dry up in the fixed income in the credit markets. You're starting to see it already and talking to traders. So I don't even think the Fed gets to four, maybe five rate cuts in 20, uh, rate, rate hikes in 2022. Yeah, and you wonder, they're going to keep raising rates. Has the bond market already priced that fully in, Phil? In other words, has the, quote, damage? Any higher rates, by the way, are not always bad for equities. We know that 94, 95, and other periods. But has the market move from that already been priced in? I think that is the trillion-dollar-plus question. I agree with you. I think the shorthand is definitely priced in. I think the 10-year, I think we're close to peak in the 10-year. And I actually think from here we move lower in terms of yields overall. So I do think the bond market has priced in what the Fed is going to do. I mean, as you know, the yield curve is flat. We have inverts yeah. on, on three, right, threes and fives, uh, seven and tens, and then and, and twenties and thirties. So we have inversions that are going on on a nominal basis already. Yeah. So yeah. I do think a lot of this is being priced in already, but more to come. So quickly, do we then just buy gold, oil stocks, and utilities and let it ride? I mean, Brian, you know, from being on your show in the past, right? So if you're going to go into a recession, the long end will come down. I actually think long duration treasuries is the play here. As we think about a recession at some point at the end of 22, like I said before, I think you're a buyer of gold here. I think you're a buyer on the dips in commodities. But ultimately, if we do go into recession, demand will destruct and then commodities will eventually and oil will sell off. So you got to be careful on the commodity side. Yeah, well, oil right now is not selling off. It's uh, just under 110 bucks a barrel. Phil Palumbo, Palumbo Wealth Management, call for recession at the end of the year. Phil, thank you very much. All right, well, we got a lot to do here on this busy Tuesday. Alibaba looking to reassure some wary investors. That news propping up the stock in the entire China tech sector. Yunus Yun is up next with the details. Plus, no outlook, no problem for your next guest when it comes to recommending shares of Nike. That stock on the rise higher. Later on, your morning RBI and what may be ahead for the U.S. housing market. Just how good or bad might it get? A new report from B of A has the answers and we'll bring it to you. It is random and interesting. Stick around. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, welcome back. Shares of Hong Kong-listed Alibaba are actually surging right now. It's on news that it is boosting its buyback program by $10 billion. That move sent to try to reassure some very nervous investors after Baba and many other China tech stocks have been absolutely pummeled in the last couple of weeks. You can see they're all higher across the board in overnight trading. That is impacting stocks and ETFs here in America as well, like the popular KWEB, China ETF. 
So let's talk more now about this move with Eunice Yoon, who joins us live from China. Eunice, what exactly is Alibaba doing? Well, Brian, Alibaba is unveiling a $25 billion repurchase program. This program is the company's largest, and it's going to go into effect immediately, lasts for about two years until March 2024. This is the second time that Alibaba has expanded its uh, buyback program. The last time was uh, $5 billion, and that was last August. Now, Alibaba's deputy CFO said that the upsized buyback scheme is meant to uh, reflect confidence in the company's long-term growth. Uh, The announcement comes as Alibaba, along with the other tech majors in China, have been contending with a whole host of regulatory issues, scrutiny, as well as concerns about the slowing economy and the impact on their buyback. Bottom line, uh, analysts say that the buyback scheme is probably going to be a good move for Alibaba because uh, the fact that the government measures have been narrowing from their perspective the ability of the company to make new investments. Now, Beijing continues to look for ways to try to boost investor confidence in the stock markets. In fact, today, the front page of the official Securities Daily featured um, an article that uh, reiterated Beijing's pledge to bring stability to the capital markets. The paper said that Beijing would be proactive to support the stable development, to correct policies that hurt market expectations. And it also stressed that stable foreign trade and stable foreign investment is the only way, it said, to achieve high quality growth. And Brian, as this all comes after um, the vice premier, Liu He, last week had already said that China wants to uh, prioritize stability in the capital markets. And then this week we had heard uh, from the premier, Li Keqiang, as well, again, reiterating the same point. Should we take away, Eunice, that the Chinese government effectively has the back of certain investors now because it was a feeling like they were almost actively against them that was hurting the stock. Is this a shift? Yeah, well, that's what it looks like, that uh, China or the the Chinese government has grown concern about the uh, level of negative sentiment in the stock markets, that uh, the falls that they were seeing were a little bit too much for them to stomach. At least that's the way it's being read here. So, I mean, the the government always, at the end of the day, will have the back of a lot of investors in some way because they don't want to see the the instability in the markets potentially leading to instability on the streets, right? So so there is a bit of a floor here. We've seen over the years uh, the, the government really stomaching some of these fluctuations, feeling that it's okay, and then, of course, putting in place new regulatory um, scrutiny in order to try to rein in some of the private sector. Uh, Mainly, uh, now it looks as though uh, they're thinking, maybe that was a little bit too much. Uh, We want to make sure that these policies are what they have been describing as red light, green light, policies that encourage growth, but also, you know, that sometimes need to be reined in. Well, investors are looking for a red light or a green light on whether to invest, Eunice. I mean, on a short-term basis, a nice little pop. On a longer term, these stocks are still down like 75% from their highs of a few months ago. Eunice Yoon always giving us the green light. Eunice, thank you. See you soon. All right, ahead. It is one of the most high-profile Russian assets inside America. It's a $50 million mansion in Aspen. And we will have an exclusive look at the 14,000-square-foot modern glass mega-mansion 
that could be seized by American authorities any day now. Stock futures, they're higher. We're back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Our welcome back. All this week, CNBC is looking at equity and opportunity for women. Last two years have shown a dramatic shift for women in the workplace as a large number have left their jobs. But that change has sparked new endeavors and an influx of female-owned businesses being built. Julia Borston has more. Over the past 18 months, women left the job market in droves, and women's participation in the workforce hit its lowest level in decades. But many women who rejected corporate structures and their failure to support them are starting their own companies. The number of active female business owners plummeted in the early months of the pandemic, but quickly rebounded and outpaced male business owners during the economic recovery. The number of women who own businesses is up 2% from before the pandemic, while the number of male business owners is actually down by nearly 2%. And that's according to census data. I spoke to one VC who is exclusively funding women entrepreneurs, Anu Dugal. She has raised over $100 million for her female founders fund to invest in early stage female-led companies. A lot of these women are recognizing that there are alternatives to kind of that nine to five structure that effectively can, can generate, you know, a healthy amount of income. And I think that that is what ultimately is leading to more women leaving the workplace. One of the 60 companies that Female Founders Fund has backed is Glow Labs. It's a software tool for sellers on the blockchain to offer loyalty programs. And it's founded by two women who left their jobs at JP Morgan. We wanted to be building where the innovation was. We wanted to be on the frontier of technology and we wanted to create the future. So we saw that the smartest people in this space were moving to Web3, crypto, the metaverse, and we wanted to jump and do that. And we felt like we couldn't hang on to our corporate job any longer. Reardon and her co-founder, Renee Russo, are in the tiny minority in the world of female entrepreneurs. They're among four women in the 23 entrepreneurs living in a Web3 startup house here in LA, and women still raise 2% of all venture capital dollars. So the odds are stacked against them. But perhaps the entrepreneurship trends of the past few years will start to change those numbers. All right, our thanks to Julia Borston for that report. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, more on the real estate market, a new Bank of America report on where we may be headed, plus some rare good news on inflation. Canadian Pacific Rail and its union have reached a deal to end a two-day work stoppage. Shares, they are mildly higher right now. This mini strike could have set off another round of inflation 
made the already snarled supply chain even worse. Staff will be back on the job at 12 p.m. today. So some good news, especially if you're a farmer. Canadian Pacific carries a lot of agricultural commodities and fertilizer. We're back after this. Get ready to pay more to borrow money. Jay Powell suggesting a more aggressive Fed could be needed to tackle inflation. That means higher borrowing costs for you. In China, investigators racing to determine the cause of that deadly crash involving a Boeing jet. The FAA set to join the probe. The Lebeau is here with the very latest. And it's got to be the shoes. Shares of Nike on the rise as it's able to overcome all kinds of hurdles to post a quarter investors like. We'll show it to you on this Tuesday, March 22nd. And this is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Hi, welcome or welcome back and good Tuesday morning, everybody. Just about 5.30 here on the East Coast. Thanks for joining us. Here's how your money and markets look as we are about halfway through this 5 a.m. hour in stock futures. They are on the rise higher. Not a lot, but Dow futures are up slightly triple digits, up about 115. NASDAQ just under that. This after the Dow snapped a five-session win streak, and on the back of some new comments from Fed Chair Jay Powell that they may hike rates by 50 basis points if they need to. That's half a percent to you and I, by the way, to get a grip on inflation. Stocks probably more impacted by oil than by the Fed, and oil rose as well. But as our own Peter Schack now points out, the last 50 basis point hike came all the way back in May of the year 2000. Peter and I were working together back then as well. I was at the height of the dot-com crash. Back then, the central bank cited, of course, inflationary concerns for that move. So we could be on the cusp of the first one-half percent rate hike in 22 years. Wow. As we watch the Fed, we're also watching bond yields, specifically the yield between the two and the 10-year note. All bond yields are up, but you want to watch that two to 10-year spread like we talked about because a lot of people look at that as some kind of a forward-looking indicator about a possible recession if we see the yields invert. Right now, they're not, but watch the two-year and watch that 10-year spread. That is going to be very important to a lot of people that you will hear from on this network in the days and weeks ahead. Trust me. All right, inside the markets, while it's been tough on a macro level this year, it's been a decent little run for many smaller companies. In fact, many of the smaller cap indexes have been outperforming as of late. But the Russell 2000 and small cap 600, they're actually higher over the past month. And like the big caps, it has been oil and gas stocks that are mostly been the ones who are red hot. So we always look at the big names. Why don't we take a look at the top five performers in the small cap 600 this year? Because there are some very interesting names. You ever heard of RPC? I hadn't. Ticker is RES. It's up 125% this year. It's an Atlanta-based oil services firm. You know, the capital of oil, Atlanta. Number two in the small cap 600, Lantheus Holdings, up 92%. Only non-oil company on here. They're a medical imaging and diagnostics name. Numbers three, four, and five, all in oil and gas. You got Neighbors Industries, Drillquip, which, by the way, does mostly for offshore use, and Silica, U.S. Silica Holdings, they help companies do things like find the best fracking sand, efficient coatings, whatever. So those are just the top five in small caps, but it's been a pretty good run for many small companies. In fact, this could be our RBI, but it's not. We have a better one. 50 
of the S&P small cap 600 are now up more than 25% so far this year. 50. In a tough year for overall, 50 stocks are up more than 25%. I hope you have owned some of them. All right, now to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says he is prepared to talk about a commitment that his country will not seek NATO membership in exchange for a Russia ceasefire, total withdrawal of Russian troops, and a guarantee from Moscow on Ukraine's security. NBC News' Molly Hunter joining us once again now from Volovets. I hope I got that right, Molly, in western Ukraine. Obviously, you and your team have been on the move to make sure that you remain safe, which is priority number one. Uh, What is the very latest on what Zelensky is offering uh, Vladimir Putin? Brian, good morning. That's right. We are in the southwest of the country. We've just gone kind of south from Lviv, which is where we've been for the last uh, several weeks. Now, according to some FT journalists with sources in the room, Mariupol apparently is really a sticking point in these ceasefire talks. Mariupol, of course, that southeast city we have been talking about so much. And according to the MOD with UK defense officials, excuse me, uh, this morning, Ukrainian forces are continuing to fight off Russian attempts to occupy the southern city of Mariupol. Now, the humanitarian situation is horrific. It is dire. But People are finally getting out, Brian. Yesterday, about 3,000 people. Uh, And this morning, the humanitarian corridor out of Mariupol is open once again. But it's working a little bit differently. So now, in order for civilians to get to safety, they have to get into private cars in the city. Buses cannot go into that city. Get into private cars, go through 15 or 16 checkpoints, and get to two villages on the outskirts of Mariupol. That's where they will get buses down to another southern coastal city called Berdyansk. And that is where buses will take them up to Zaporizhia. There's a train station there, Brian, and that's where they can move west. Now, people are moving to Lviv, as we have been talking about. Millions are going through there to get to Europe. Where I am in Volovets, people are fleeing from Mariupol, from Kiev, uh, from Kharkiv, from those hard-hit eastern cities. But people here want to stay in the country. People have brought their house keys with them. And Volovets is in the Carpathian Mountains. This has been a refuge for people fleeing violence and war for centuries, Brian. And the people here are being extremely welcoming to the new arrivals. Brian? Oh, that is good to hear. And, and just very quickly, Molly, would they be able to get into Slovakia if they needed to? I know that's that's where you are near. Yeah, that's exactly right. We're near basically kind of four borders. We're near Poland, we're near Hungary, we're near Slovakia, and we're near Romania. The Carpathian Mountains kind of stretch along all of these countries. And we are certainly a lot closer to borders, which is why if the situation changes for people here, they feel a little bit closer uh, to those borders and an exit route. Brian? Molly Hunter in Volovets, Ukraine. We're glad you and the team are safe. Molly, stay that way, please. Thank you. All right, now to that developing story in the crash of the Boeing jetliner in China. No survivors expected, but rescuers do continue to dig through the wreckage of that China Eastern Airlines flight. Also looking to find the black boxes that are so essential to investigators. Philip Bowe joining us now with the very latest. And Phil, um, hard to know where we stand because the magnitude of the descent was so great that it even even if there was a catastrophic engine loss, wouldn't the plane theoretically be able to do some uh, have a glide ratio of some? Sure, you would think that the plane would be able to do that, and there's no indication that there was a catastrophic loss of power for either of the plane's engines or that there was an incident in midair. One of the many questions that investigators are trying to figure out, you mentioned that they're looking for the two black boxes. You've got the flight data recorder as well as the cockpit voice recorder. Theoretically, you would expect that the investigators, depending on how ter- how the terrain is, how mountainous it is, how tough it is, 
you would expect that they would come across uh, both of those uh, recorders relatively soon. I would say within the next day or two, you know, they emit a beacon, uh, which helps uh, investigators track them down. This is not like they're looking in the bottom of the ocean for these. Um, so you would think that they would get to those relatively quick. Uh, in the meantime, China Eastern has grounded 102 of its 737-800 planes. You mentioned the descent, Brian. Take a look at this, because when you take a look at how quickly this China Eastern plane plummeted, in less than two minutes, it went down 25,000 feet. Less than two minutes. That's how quickly this plane went down. Keep in mind, as you take a look at shares of Boeing, that China is the largest market for 737-800 models, also known as the NG models. Uh, It is a workhorse within commercial aviation. And China Eastern is uh, it has more than 1,100 of these 737-800s. China is the largest market. And we should point this out, Brian. We, it was, we said it numerous times yesterday. Cannot say this enough. This was not a 737 MAX. The MAX is not yet commercially flying again <clears throat> in China. It has been approved by regulators to resume commercial flights, but none of the airlines there have put it back in service. And uh, again, this is an investigation. It really does hinge on finding the two data recorders because that will give investigators a lot more information than what we have right now. Yeah, and um, that is key from the investment perspective that that it is not a max. Uh, I spoke with a a friend who is a 40-year commercial and private pilot with a lot of experience in the air and a variety of planes, Phil. I'm going to bring up something that's a little bit maybe uncomfortable, so feel free to ignore it if you need to. Um, is there any talk that this could have potentially been a deliberate act by the pilot, given that this plane does have a glide ratio, like we saw with Sullenberger, obviously a different right. plane, but even a jet, you are able to, to, to glide this plane. You don't come down at that velocity without some other type of potential incident. Is there any chatter of them looking potentially at a, uh, a deliberate act by this pilot? Well, I, I don't know if investigators are looking at that yet, but most crash investigators that I talked with yesterday say that is one possibility. Another possibility, Brian, is cockpit confusion, that they were at the top of the descent and the pilots became confused. I wouldn't know if disoriented is the right word, but confused about where they were at and entered the wrong data into the plane, which began the process, and then it spiraled out of control very quickly. So there is a number of possibilities there. Look, there's also the possibility that you had some of the components within the airplane dramatically fail. There's no indication of that based on the data that we've seen so far, and most believe it's highly unlikely. But until you get those data recorders, you really have no indication. Look, the cockpit voice recorder theoretically would give you some indication if the pilot had some intent of, you know, intentionally flying the plane into the ground. That's what you would think. Yeah. Um, So there's just so many possibilities at this point, Brian. Yeah, there are a way for those black boxes, but uh, we just do not see that kind of descent at that speed that quickly uh, in almost any of these things that you've been covering for for 20 plus years. Philbo, thank you very much. All right, let's switch gears now. Tough, tough transition, but let's go now to Nike because Nike shares are on the rise on better than expected quarterly numbers. All about the road ahead, though, for Nike, the company holding out on giving any guidance. There's so many uncertainties around inflation, supply chain. Uh, even the Ukraine. Joining us now is Brian Nagel, Senior Equity Research Analyst at Oppenheimer. Brian, uh, the stock obviously down from its highs. Investors like what they heard. It is up uh, overnight. What was sort of the best 
part of the quarter and what might still concern you around Nike? Well, good morning, Brian. Look, I think this was a great report from Nike. As, as you mentioned in your opening, there were a lot of concerns uh, amongst investors into this report. You know, a lot of the, the supply chain issues, geopolitical concerns, you know, what impact those issues were having upon Nike. And look, I think the, the big, if I step back and look at this report, the big message from Nike was we're managing all these issues very, very well. So if you look at the numbers, the sales growth uh, topped expectations, particularly in North America. China is still weaker, but we're seeing a rebound there. And then probably most importantly, the margin profile of Nike continues to improve. So that shows this is becoming a more profitable company, which I think bodes very well for the future. Yeah, I mean, and does the lack of guidance trouble you at all? Or should we be surprised, Brian, if any company was actually able to give guidance these days? It doesn't bother me. You know, look, Nike's a, a very well-run, very prudent company. So what they did, this was the quarter end of February. So they uh, guided through the, the year-end May. And then they basically said they'll give guidance for that next fiscal year when they report their fourth quarter results. And look, I think just given the backdrop, that makes a lot of sense. But they did in the, in the Q&A section of their conference call, you know, without officially giving guidance, what they basically did say is they, as they look towards that next fiscal year. So that's again, that's the year ending uh, May of 23. They do expect kind of a return to normal growth profile. So, again, not official guidance, but I think a very important comment from Nike last night. I have no idea what a shoe is made of, Brian. I assume there's some leather, some plastic, probably some oil in there somewhere at some point in the supply chain. Uh, can the consumer absorb what no doubt must be higher costs ahead for shoes? Well, look, it's a great question. And you know, I've said uh, you know, to our clients, I, I follow a number of consumer companies. Nike's just one of them. And you know, we look at this inflation, these inflationary pressures on the consumer. And what I've seen so far is the consumer is managing this quite well. You know, what we have, we haven't seen what I call demand destruction really anywhere in any significant way. So in terms of Nike, I think the company does have a lot of pricing power that basically happens on the heels of superior product innovation. What I'm basically saying is that Nike creates great products and encourages consumers to pay up for those products. So that gives them a lot of leeway, so to say, to yeah. you know, strategically pass these costs along to their consumers. And you like the stock still, Brian Nagel, pretty good quarter for Nike. It's up about 7% in the pre-market. We appreciate you getting up, Brian. Take care. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Coming up, targeting one of Russia's richest billionaires in Aspen. Robert Frank gives us an exclusive look at the key property that U.S. authorities have their eye on. As we head to break, a couple quick headlines for you also happening on this Tuesday Campaign contributions by Coke Industries to American lawmakers facing secure scrutiny over their decision to remain in Russia in the wake of Putin's war. CNBC has learned that more than two dozen congressional members received roughly 110,000 the weeks leading up to Putin's attack. Worldwide Exchange is back in a moment. All right, welcome back. The crackdown on Russian billionaires continues. Authorities trying to seize assets like yachts and houses all over the world. And that includes right here in America. Because American law enforcement now reportedly has their eye on Roman Abramovich's $50 million Aspen mansion. Robert Frank joining us now with an exclusive look at the property itself. What are we looking at? I got to imagine it's probably pretty spectacular, Robert. 
Yeah, it's Aspen, Brian. So, you know, everything there is going to be pretty spectacular. Uh, Roman Abramovich is, of course, the highest profile oligarch in the West and now the biggest name on the sanctions list. The EU, the UK, Australia and Canada all have frozen his assets and barred him from traveling to their countries. The U.S. has not sanctioned Abramovich yet. Sources telling me the White House may add him to the list in the coming weeks. If he is sanctioned here, the first assets the government could freeze would be his real estate in Colorado. He owns two homes there. One is a 14,000 square foot modern glass fortress protected by 200 acres in Snowmass, uh, just outside of Aspen. Abramovich bought that in 2008 for $36.5 million. He expanded the property underground, brokers telling me it would sell for at least $50 million today. Now, the other property is a ski-in, ski-out villa just down the road that he bought for $12 million also in 2008. County records show both properties were purchased and remain in Abramovich's name. They are believed to be the only properties that are held by a sanctioned oligarch that haven't been transferred or were not purchased by an anonymous shell company. So these properties, highly unusual. Because they are in his name, the government would likely be able to freeze them immediately. Now, it's unclear what's going to happen to these properties. Buyers already circling because, Brian, you know this is Aspen. Everybody's got money there. Supply of listings in Aspen down 60% year over year. The average sale price, now I'm talking the average sale price in Aspen right now, over $13 million. Brian? Well, that's absolutely insane. And it's I guess it's more insane that he's got multiple homes. I mean, I get you have homes over the world, but not homes like in the same neighborhood. Is there any indication that he's ever been to these houses? I mean, are these just literally ways to park money in the U.S.? And by the way, I think Abramovich's daughter was born in the She may be a U.S. citizen. His yacht, the Eclipse, was in Chelsea Piers like a decade ago. I met one of the deckhands, believe it or not, in that burger bar playing golf and the guy said he was there to have his daughter born or something like this. A lot of, lot of mystery. Yeah, the ultimate, the, the ultimate anchor baby, right? He had his yacht there while his daughter was born in New York. His ex-wife, Dasha, is also a U.S. citizen even before they met. And you're right, Brian. He has rarely been to this property in Aspen. Aspen is already a housing market where people usually go there maybe two to three weeks a year. Abramovich hasn't been seen there in years. However, this is such a private property, he could land in his private jet, drive to this property about 15 minutes from the airport, and no one would ever see him. So he might have been there, but it's just after 2008, he had some parties there when he first landed in town. He gave a lot to local charity. He's just not been a presence there in recent years. Just these huge mansions sitting empty. And, and you do wonder if the fact that he might, maybe he could transfer these into some of his other family members' names. We'll, we'll see what happens with these mansions in Aspen uh, in the U.S. Robert Frank, thank you very much. All right, yeah, his, his yacht was parked here about 10 years ago, I think, at Chelsea Piers. Anyway, on deck, Tiffany McGee is here with more on how you can manage through inflation. The best spots for your money right now. Stick around. All right, welcome back. Well, between rising oil, other kinds of inflation, which is off the charts, and the Federal Reserve, all of you out there certainly have a lot to deal with for investing these days. Fed Chair Jay Powell saying inflation is, quote, much too high, opening the door to hiking rates by more than 25 basis points if necessary. Powell noting it is possible for the economy to achieve a soft landing 
As the Fed tightens monetary policy, investors have been watching the yield curve as an inversion between the two-year and the 10-year notes are, well, not always, but can proceed a recession. They are just about 18 basis points, or about one-fifth of 1% away from inverting. Just keep an eye on that chart. Let's talk more now about all this. Tiffany McGee, CEO and CIO of Pivotal Advisors and a CNBC contributor. Tiffany, we're putting a lot of faith in Jay Powell and his team at the Fed because this is going to be threading the ultimate economic needle, I feel. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I think about um, all that we've been through in the past two years and so much talk about the Fed raising rates. And here we are. We're at our first rate increase. And so, you know, I, like most investors, are, are, are really thinking about, you know, what does this mean for portfolios? What does this mean for the economy? Uh, and I think one thing that's really important to remember is that um, the U.S. consumer in particular is operating from a position of strength, right, which is really going to help them kind of navigate this higher inflationary environment. Um, You know, consumers in the U.S. are sitting on about $2.5 trillion in cash. We've got low employment. We've got record high wages. And you know, wage growth is also set to about by by most estimates to outplace inflation later this year. So consumers are really well positioned to absorb higher prices. But you wonder, Tiffany, for how long? I mean, right now we're still all and I understand there's a lot of concerns about BA2 and whatever it is and inflation does feel you've traveled. I've traveled. People are out. I mean, the airports are packed. The stores are packed. Hotels are packed. But costs are also packed. They're up. And you just wonder how long that can last, I guess. Yeah, I mean, listen, we're, we're, we're used to, you know, prices have been slowly, steadily increasing. Um, but again, you know, if consumer spending is 70% of GDP, that's a number that we really have to look at. And we're also, we also really have to pay attention to corporate spending and what, as, as well. So the consumer balance sheet is strong. They're making more money than they've ever made before. Um, they're employed. And so that is really like the best, uh, the best situation to be in, in an environment of rising prices. And corporations are strong, too. Just look at the, the earnings season that we came off of, um, strong balance sheets. Like yep. For me, the theme going forward in terms of picking stocks is strong ba- balance sheets and strong business models. And speaking of threading the needle, I know you like Lululemon and have for some time. Do the Nike results last night, which were pretty strong, do they give you more confidence than Lulu? So I own both of them, and I think right here you have to own both. So they do two different things. At first glance, they seem like they're very similar. Um, but Nike definitely um, outperformed yesterday when they released their earnings. Um, but I, what I was really paying attention to also was margins. In an environment of lots of headwinds, inflation, supply chain issues, higher labor costs, Nike was able to increase their margins just by a little bit. Uh, and they did that by not discounting. And charging full price. But what's really interesting to me about Nike is that going forward, they're really going to be focused on their main revenue sources, right? So number one, more direct selling. So not really using like the footlockers of the yep. world as much. Um, investing in their website, flagship yep. stores, and really going into, into the metaverse. But that's a play. That's a, a page of the Lululemon playbook in terms of that direct selling. Um, so I like both right here, uh, especially at these discount prices. Mm-hmm. All right, Tiffany McGee, love having you on. Thank you very much. Watching Nike and Lulu. Folks, no time for the RBI today. It will be back tomorrow, as we will be. We'll see you then. Squawk is next. 
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.